0: This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery.
1: What we're seeing in 2022 is the beginning of the unwinding phase of all this federal support. Our providers are looking to us now, are asking what's going to stick, what's truly going to go away, and how do I navigate that?
0: Hello and welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host, Trevor Duran. Today, I have two colleagues with me whose names and voices you will know and trust, Bill Woodson and Brian Esser. We're going to talk about a portion of one of our biggest themes for the year, which is the idea that at this moment, we would be experiencing a little bit more of a true reset in terms of a focus to more normal health system operations. As we know, that's not the case, largely driven by the cost side of the equation, which is driven by both labor and supply costs. Today, we're going to talk about the payment and policy side of the equation, because there have been a number of programs largely driven by the public health emergency or through the CARES Act that really helped in the last couple of years. And at some point in the relatively near future, they're going to go away. I'm going to let Brian really dig into what some of those specifics are that we're paying attention to and how we think that's going to impact and accelerate this need for health systems So think about this as a real reset moment. Brian, what are you focused on and what are you paying close attention to on the payment and policy side?
1: Thanks, Trevor, and good to be back. You said it well. From 2020, obviously, when the pandemic hit, to today, the federal government thankfully stepped in and provided health systems providers of all sorts a significant level of financial support, as well as flexibility in the way the care is delivered. Everything from accelerated and advanced payments through the CARES Act to suspending the sequester and pay go type dynamics to federal matches. Medicaid being bumped up to really bolster enrollment and sustain insurance coverage for a lot of folks that needed that kind of support as they were losing jobs or just suffering from pandemic-related issues. What we're seeing in 2022 is the beginning of the unwinding phase of all this federal support. Our providers are looking to us now, are asking what's going to stick, what's truly going to go away, and how do I navigate that disclosure or discontinuation of support with the real world dynamics of inflation and expense growth? It's an interesting question and one that, frankly, I don't have a clear answer
2: on. The timing will be interesting, Brian, given that it is an election year, and some things the administration can do by itself through CMS or their Innovation Center. Other things will go to Congress, and in particular, we've learned that to really extend the reimbursement for telehealth services, that actually does have to go through Congress. There will be some continuation of a lot of things that have really helped health systems, but sometime this summer, maybe going into the fall, we're going to lose some of the support that we've grown to count on that's actually been so incredible. Incredibly helpful for the industry. Just to put that in stark numbers, the CARES Act itself has probably lifted operating margins for most systems by a point and a half to two points. If you imagine this as a scale, where we've had a lot of good things on one side of scale and in terms of support. Things come off that scale. And now what rises on the other side is the reality of what's going on right now in February, March of 2022. And just to give you some of the real numbers right now, for most of our members, nursing costs are up 25%. Total costs and total cost per adjusted discharge are about 20%. There's a 10 to 12% increase in length of stay. Contract labor is up anywhere from 75 to 200%. And there's a turnover percent too in the workforce that's around 20% right now, let alone just vacancies. What we have is some real pressure on the income statement, which brings into effect the idea that our systems have done well on their investments. The balance sheets are relatively strong. Cash flow is pretty good, but now we have to figure out how you play that tension between managing your near-term income statement against your balance sheet, which trickles into capital investments, but also your strategy and your long-term operating plan.
0: Brian, you touched on two areas that will go a little deeper. The first is the unwinding of the public health emergency, the PHE. There's a few things to touch on there.
1: It's interesting. Let's not lose track of all of the flexibilities that the PHE granted our providers. If you look at globally, PHE, we're expecting what's well, a 90 day extension timeframe that HHS can do. We're expecting sometime in the fall for that to ultimately end, assuming COVID continues its current trajectory down. But within the PHE itself, we would bucket into maybe three big categories of support those being payment, technology-related, and then workforce dynamics. Within the payment side itself, remember, we have DRG add-on payments for all those COVID patients that are continuing to show up, 20% bump. That's continued to offset some of the financial pain for the providers. Telehealth payments at parity still for Medicare fee-for-service will start to go away. Acute care hospital at home programs that are tied to the PHE, I think we see upwards of almost 200 hospitals offering those or pursuing dynamics there. And then the innovation center itself, ACOs and other models being adjusted to reflect the nuances and utilization for the fee-for-service beneficiaries. All of that is wrapped into the PHD and dependent on it being in place to continue. What we do with that are going to be interesting. I think telehealth, Bill and I probably would agree, big uptick in utilization and MedPAC and others continue to monitor, is telehealth here to stay? What are the fraud and abuse type dynamics there? But how do we really adjust that program and keep it in place to a degree? And what does that mean for eligible providers, originating sites, the ability to use video, audio, synchronous, asynchronous technologies, RPM? All of those within the technology space probably are going to last in the some degree or shape or form beyond the PHE. But others on the workforce side, workforce costs are up, but the ability to have cross-state licensing, enrolled providers and credential them quicker, ambulance being able to treat on site or at alternative sites aside from the ER, a lot of flexibilities that were inherent there are critical. So when you talk to the members, which of these flexibilities that are likely to go away or definitely tied to the PHE are most useful now and what would be most useful in the future?
2: It varies by the organization and we get the most questions about the telehealth side to continue to propel and enforce our overall digital health strategy where the concern is going to come a bit later this year is that this gets into the weeds of Medicare policy. As your labor costs are up 20 to 25 percent, Medicare is not going to catch up for about 18 months, maybe 12 to 18 months. And within that, remember, there's all this detail about geographic adjustment factors, hospital wage index, geographic practice costs, I don't see any help coming to help you there. And that also goes for the commercial payers. Your costs are up. I don't think you're going to get any sympathy or help from the commercial payers in adjusting your commercial contracts, even as you're returning to a market that seems more normal with potentially a lot of pent up demand. Although as we work through our forecasting right now at SG2, there's just lots of unknowns about how much care has been postponed, what the acuity level is going to be truly coming through the front door and patients' reluctance or willingness to re-enter the system.
1: Yeah, I think the wage index dynamic is fascinating. It's uh, definitely more than a 12-month lag. So this concept that Medicare is going to help offset some of this inflation on the expense side is just not going to be there, at least in 2022. Hopefully by 2023, 2024, it'll catch up. But it's also being coupled with, on the PHE side, this idea that Medicaid has not been able, at least the states have not, those that accepted an expanded FMAP or federal match, which is all of them, have not been able to disenroll any new enrollees since really March of 2020. So we're up, let's say, 12 to 13 million new enrollees during that time frame. that at some point this year, the states are going to be able to start disenrolling these folks who may or may not need the Medicaid coverage. So what we're trying to figure out, we see states such as California, New York, million plus new enrollees. What happens to those folks? Do so they go to the exchanges? Are they already covered by their employers and their newly formed jobs? Because remember, unemployment is at historic lows again, so we're doing well there. But what's going to happen to the Medicaid funding? And do our provider members start to see a lot of folks either uninsured or are not fully insured and how do we manage that? We have a little bit of a debate here of whether this is going to be a real impact. We're seeing revenue cycle, even some of the credit agencies saying this hasn't really shown up on the revenue side for the membership and the providers, but others saying this has been a critical crutch for us. We have a lot of folks that needed this coverage and we're glad that they have it. So more time will tell, but we expect a big disenrollment push probably through 2023. And will that impact your payer mix substantially to be played out?
2: The good news, I suppose, and it's obviously temporary, is that the state budgets, because of federal support, are in relatively good shape for the short term. And CMS's stated policy, at least publicly so far this year, is where their focus really wants to go is into access, provider rates, Medicaid, and CHIP, which is the Children's Self-Insurance Program. That will be a focus of this administration. It seems like it'll play out differently in different states, and we, we can guess how that map would look over time. But in the near term, not a lot of turbulence there. And for most of you, even if we talk about the expansion of the number of people who joined the insurance exchanges, which has been considerable, this is still a relatively small part of your payer mix. And really what we're concerned about is sort of the more macro picture on the commercial side and supporting a different cost structure, different operational model. And frankly, the industry waiting, needing, searching for a productivity solution that we've yet to find. But now it seems like it's going to be an absolute imperative over the next few years.
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. And the commercial side is going to be critical. And I do think the exchanges, right? And do we see this sustained surge in the exchanges? Roughly 2 million last year. So we're around 14, 15 million at rollies there. But again, a very small sliver of overall payer mix. And really, I would argue a lot of that was tied to the current tax credits that came in in 2021, but are only going through the end of this calendar year. And the Biden administration was unable to get those into the infrastructure bill that never went through. Do they have a vehicle to really extend those tax credits to roughly 2025, which is their target? If not, do we see the exchange start to dip down? And then where do these enrollees go? Like Bill said, are they uninsured? And what's our commercial plan? And then really what's going on with Medicare Advantage and the value-based care side of Medicare fee-for-service is the other interesting play here, Trevor.
0: Agreed. That's where I was hoping to go next. Within this context, we had CMMI earlier in the year give some signals of where they were going to go in the future, but now we're seeing it play out. The march
1: towards value, you can debate how big of a march has that been thus far. Nationally, if you look at the healthcare payment and learning action network data, they would argue that upwards of 40% of lives are tied to some level of value. We would argue that may be the case, but true revenue being derived from value-based care programs is much smaller, probably in the single digits, if that. But ultimately, CMMI knows that they need to pivot, and they came out last fall. Hopefully, we've all seen that with their new strategic plan. Five big areas, the ones that I'm going to point out are really a drive towards health equity and really streamlining the portfolio itself, getting down from 50 plus pilot models in CMMI down to those that are really making a meaningful difference on value and quality and overall cost to Medicare itself. So we're expecting a big infusion of equity metrics and then the potential of pairing up things like bundles and putting those in ACOs or total cost of care programs or bringing back more mandatory models to prevent any kind of gaming within these different models themselves. And we see that with their direct contracting program, most recently, last Friday, renamed as the ACO REACH program really bringing capitation into the Medicare fee-for-service world, and then sort of tweaking that program around the edges to address some concerns from different parts of Congress, putting providers back into the governance seat, readjusting benchmarks, and really infusing a significant uh, amount of equity dynamics into the model itself.
2: Bill, what do you think? It seems like a lot of this is still aspirational. You and I have been in calls with a lot of CFOs who are skeptical. There's a reason why it's called risk. Why would I take it unless there's an upside for me? Why am I saving money for the payers? There's a tension here. We've used the line before, but this is a 20-year, 30-year transformational process. And we should also recognize that just a small number of those pilot programs you allude to have actually generated savings for Medicare and for providers and help. Patients out. Experimentation will continue under different approaches. Some d- sort of consolidation, but we should note the area that continues to show whether it's promise or growth, right, is Medicare Advantage. Strong enrollment growth again this year. Medpac, which is the group that advises Congress on Medicare, fully acknowledges that we'll have a majority of uh, Medicare members or beneficiaries in Medicare Advantage plans by 2023. The uptick in payment reimbursement this year, I think, it was about nine percent. The numbers are promising there. The level of difficulty in working under Medicare Advantage is challenging, and there will be pressure on the coding and the true economics underneath this. At the moment, though, it was last week, 60 members of the Senate chimed and said, let's keep Medicare Advantage going. There's strong support for it. We have members who stepped into their own plans in the last couple of years or have joined joint ventures. But as a percentage, your payer mix, it really matters. I think the other thing I'd add to the value discussion as we're doing research right now on the portfolio model of managing payers is that the employers are frustrated. So remember that maybe 80% of your commercial business now is from self-insured employers, meaning all the payers do is process claims for them. The employers are extremely frustrated with the value that the industry has delivered back that has two implications. One is don't expect a lot of help on your new contracts with increasing reimbursement rates, but also as we're seeing in certain parts of the country, continued interest and rise in direct to employer contracting, whether it's for specialty services or even primary care, like direct primary care models, all that seems to have some tailwinds behind it right now. That's something we'll be watching closely. I couldn't agree with that more.
1: It felt like a while back, the employers, especially the HR departments, were afraid of the friction it would cause with the employee base to really direct them towards a provider. That fear seems to have been abated quite quickly now that these costs continue to rise. So totally agree. Employer relations and direct employer offers are going to be critical moving forward.
2: I facilitated a panel a couple of weeks ago at Vizion's CEO conference. And on my panel, I have the head of the purchasers business group on health, which used to be called the Pacific Business Group on Health. I had Lisa Goldstein from um, Kaufman Hall, a new partner for Vizion and for SG2. And then I had Dr. Mark Boom from Houston Methodist. And I just asked, you know, what's the imperatives that you give the audience right now as it relates to some of this discussion? Dr. Broom said, culture, we're going to have to get ready for a new operating model. I need to tap into the culture more to pull that off and also remember the things we've learned about health equity along the way. From Lisa Goldstein, and many of you know her previously from from Moody's, she said, now it's time to double down on operations, really focusing on your operations to maintain liquidity as best you can. But this challenge will only get more difficult. And then from Elizabeth Mitchell, the head of the purchasers business group on health, it was, the employers are frustrated with you. It's the comment I just made a moment ago. Expect more pressure there. Their labor costs are going up too. This is where there probably is some sort of inflection point coming. It's always more slowly developing than we think and and describe, but it does feel like it's out there.
0: That's well said. Good perspective. Brian and Bill, thanks. You touched on a number of areas. If I can sum up, I feel like each of which is kind of a small piece of the pie, but in totality, it's going to make an enormous difference as health systems try to plan for next year and beyond. So thanks for outlining some of at least the payment and policy side and what and when We're expecting things are really going to change for our members. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us, and or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at SG2 Healthcare. And if you want to talk more about innovative healthcare strategies, you can always email me at SG2perspectives at SG2.com. Finally, SG2 is a Vizient company, and there are a bunch of Vizient podcasts that you might like. You can find them at Vizient backslash podcasts. Have a great day.